you wouldn't invent such a thing. If you are inventing right. stories about Jesus, you're not going to invent that. Or it's like Peter, uh, when, when Jesus predicts his death and resurrection, Peter takes him aside and rebukes him, the Greek says. He rebukes him yeah. and says, this, this can't happen. And Jesus turns and rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. Well, if you're inventing this, why, why would you invent something that casts uh, your, your leader, Peter, yeah. in such a negative light? Um, yeah. The resurrection, uh, the, the resurrection narratives. You've got the women who go to the empty tomb, and they're the ones that believe. They're the ones that believe the angel, that even the disciples don't, even after they see the empty tomb, um, and they'd been in hiding anyway. It's like you're, you're, you're presenting a story about a guy who comes back from the dead, which is already going to be difficult for sure. many people to believe. Mm-hmm. Why make it doubly difficult by, by having women who at that time were not respected as witnesses, good mm-hmm. witnesses, um, but they're the ones who are the primary witnesses to the empty tomb and that Jesus rose from the dead yeah. while the disciples, the male disciples are cowering behind locked doors. I mean, yeah. uh, you're putting the men, the male disciples in a bad light while you're exalting the females, which, okay, you don't think much about that in our 21st century, sure. unless you live in Afghanistan, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. So you don't think about that in the 21st century, but in the first century, you got to look at what their culture was back then. And a woman's testimony was very lowly regarded. So um, we find this throughout the gospels. And I think that that um, in those cases where we find these embarrassing elements, it seems that this weighs in favor of authenticity. Hey everyone, welcome to Faith in the Folds, a podcast for ministry, biblical studies, and Christian living. I'm your host, Kevin Byrd. Today I sat down with a scholar, a friend, and an associate professor of theology at Houston Baptist University, Mike McConey. Back in 2020, Mike was kind enough to serve as the external examiner on my dissertation, and today he was kind enough to let me interview him about the Gospels as examples of ancient biography. Mike has worked extensively on the Gospels as biographies and has written quite a bit on the resurrection of Jesus in particular. Check out the links to his work in the description below. This episode of the podcast is the second in a new series where we'll take a book-by-book approach to most of the New Testament. And it's my hope to take some of the best of what the Academy has to offer and help make that relatable for church audiences. To help us set the stage, I wanted Mike to help us understand the genre of the Gospels and what kinds of information the evangelists expect us to know about Jesus. If you enjoyed this interview and think others may benefit from it, could I encourage you to like it and share it on your preferred social media platforms? And if you haven't already, would you also consider subscribing to Faith in the Folds so you won't miss out on future episodes? And as always, thank you so much for tuning in today. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I am really excited to dig into this new series concentrating on the New Testament and uh, to kick us off with really, I think, episode two and three of this series, you have graciously agreed to talk to us about some historical issues related to the Gospels and why there are differences in the Gospels. Let me welcome you to Faith in the Fold, sir. Well, thanks, Kevin. I appreciate you. Uh, It's an honor to be on here and uh, and, you know, I was honored to be asked to be 
the external reader on your dissertation. You just did a fantastic, fantastic job. So I'm proud of you and I'm happy to participate. Well, thank you very much. And um, you know, for, for those of my family members who are kind enough to listen, he said fantastic twice, okay? So, <laughs> I wasn't exaggerating when I told you that. You know, Dr. Lacona himself has mentioned that. Before we dig into what we're going to talk about today, for uh, a lot of folks, I think, in, in, in your church tradition and also uh, folks who are in the world, academic world of historical Jesus study, they will recognize your name. But for some folks who might not know you as well, would you be willing to tell us just a little bit about yourself? Where are you these days? Um, what, what kind of teaching do you do? H- how did you get interested? in uh, this kind of stuff. Help us get to know you a little bit uh, before we before we dig into all this uh, technical fun stuff. Sure. Well, um, I'm 60 years old. This year I turned 60. It's like, wow. Uh, do you Life feel 60? So you don't quickly. look 60. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. <laughs> I remember a guy when I was 47, I had my 47th birthday and I took the day off. And the next day I'm at work and the guy said, you had a birthday? Happy birthday. How old are you? And I said, 47. And he said, Wow, you don't look 47. And I said, Well, thanks. He said, You used to. No. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so yeah, I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. I grew up in a Christian family. Uh, They weren't Christian initially, but um, they became Christians. And and then um, I became a Christian at the age of 10. And I grew some spiritually during my teens, not a whole lot. Went, Went off to a Christian university. And that's where I really started to grow. Um, and just had um, a really good time. I was a music major, oh. and um, but I, I just grew in a, a fascination with, I wanted to study the New Testament in its original language, Greek. Mm-hmm. And so I took some, uh, I took one um, elective course in Koine Greek, uh, first semester in undergrad school, and uh, did well on it. And I, I wasn't all that great of a student otherwise. <laughs> But so they they ended up uh, letting me into the program, Master of Arts in New Testament Studies on probation because uh, my GPA wasn't uh, up to par with the 3.0 at that point. Okay. Um, and I was a music major, not uh, biblical studies or anything like that. So I had to take another year's worth of Greek over the summer before getting into the program. And anyway, so I was just really enjoying the program, doing really well in it. And um, my final semester... I just uh, started to have doubts and it, it was a matter of how do I know this stuff is really true? Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm going to devote my life to Christianity um, and ministering with the gospel, I, you know, if it's not true, then I'm, I'm wasting my time. I'm devoting yeah. my life to a fairy tale. And I, mm-hmm. I just didn't want to do that. How do I know it's true? And so I got introduced to apologetics. I didn't want to get into it too much, but I remember that um, Gary Habermas, I was recommended to him. I went to his office. I sat down and he described to me some of the evidence for the resurrection, helped me to put everything into perspective. And it really encouraged me in my faith. After I finished grad school, at least the coursework in 1985, um, I was back in Baltimore, my home, and I started to uh, question my faith again. And back then there was no email. So I ended up calling Gary Habermas and we had a number of conversations. And if it weren't for Gary, I don't know that I'd be a Christian today. Wow. Yeah. So, um, but it was, it was resurrection. And so I just have spent a lot of time studying the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and what surrounds it. 
And I've been involved in 34 public debates, all mm -hmm. but one with non-believers. And um, uh, a, a lot of the objections have to do with the Gospels. And so that got me more interested than ever in the Gospels to research some of these things. And um, so I ended up getting a PhD in New Testament studies. And so I've, I've written stuff on the Gospels. Some, a lot of my research now is on the Gospels. And um, I teach, I'm an associate professor of theology at Houston Baptist University. Um, it's a real happening university, I'll tell you. We've got just fantastic faculty there. Yeah. Um, um, and the Master of Arts in, in Christian Apologetics is a fantastic degree, can be done entirely online. We have a, master, uh, a master's degree in Master of Arts in Theological Studies, mm -hmm. and um, we have Master of Arts in in philosophy. And so I'm real proud to be on faculty there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you live in Atlanta these days. Is that right? I do. Yeah. Atlanta Braves fan. And uh, uh, hence the Jersey for those of you who are, are, are not watching, but just listening. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Mike rolled Braves. in with his Braves jersey on. <laughs> yeah. So, does yeah. that, does that have your name on the back? Did you get, get a custom Jersey? No, um, now I have two Braves jerseys. This is one my son gave me. Uh, it's it's a it's got Freddie Freeman uh, Freeman's name on the back. He's our first baseman. Gotcha. Then I have another one that um, Greg. This is a replica. Mm -hmm. um, I have an authentic one, the same kind that that he wore on the field, and that's got McMichael on on the back of it. Gotcha. So he's my favorite uh, baseball player of all time. So okay. I, I love Greg right. McMichael. He's a dear brother in Christ too. Well, very cool. Very cool. I, um, I we had mentioned before we started recording that uh, my folks, dad's a Cubs fan, mom's a Braves fan. Um, you know, I, I kind of ended up cheering for both, you know, just because of the, you know, their rivalry wasn't nearly as strong as some other, um, you know, inter, interdivisional rivals. And, uh, you know, I, I just yesterday I was using an old Chipper Jones cup. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You know, so like an emphasis on old, right? He, uh, you know, Chipper had been playing for, for a few years. So, well, let's talk about the Gospels uh, because it really does. If, if Christian faith does hinge on the resurrection, then we need to know that the Gospels are reliable. And so that, that brings us immediately to it. Um, first off, can you tell us a little bit about what are the Gospels' genre? Uh, what's their literary type? When we approach them, what kind of expectations are we supposed to have when we read something like these? Help us kind of dig into this a little bit. Yeah, well, the majority of New Testament scholars today uh, now hold that the Gospels belong to the genre of Greco-Roman biography. Mm -hmm. You say, why Greco-Roman biography? Why not Jewish biography? Well, for some unknown reason, uh, a reason unknown to us, uh, Jews of that day did not, they just weren't interested in writing biographies of their sages. So we only have four that have survived. Mm -hmm. You've got the autobiography by Josephus. Right. And then you have three biographies by Philo. You've got his life of Moses, um, life of Abraham, and, um, oh, I can't remember the third one. Um, but his life of Moses is, is the more important one of those. Yeah. And um, according to the late Louis Feldman, who was the leading Josephus scholar, Jewish scholar, not a, a believer, but um, he's the leading Josephus scholar until he died just a few years ago. According to Feldman, 
um, those are the only biographies written by Jews in antiquity and, and no other biographies were written by Jews of their sages until uh, modern times. Yeah. So again, we don't know why they weren't interested in writing biographies, but they weren't. So if you were going to write a biography of an important figure, Greco-Roman biography was the only game in town. Yeah. And what's interesting, even Philo's Life of Moses falls into the literary conventions um, as uh, the same as Greco-Roman biography. Yeah. Um, and so does pretty much Josephus's um, autobiography. The other two by Philo, the life of um, Abraham, and again, this other one that eludes uh, mm. me at the moment, um, they're different. Um, so most of the um, uh, uh, ancient biography, they eschewed allegory, mm -hmm. but these other two biographies by Philo um, they had allegory and they're pretty much almost commentaries on the Old Testament text. So they'll talk about the Old Testament text and explain them. So they're, they're really unlike the Gospels mm -hmm. and they're unlike other biographies of that era. So, yeah. So it was um, be, before the, the 20th century, I, I'd say, most scholars looked at the Gospels as ancient biographies mm -hmm. and then 20th century come along and a bunch of scholars were try arguing that no they're sui generis a, a unique genre yeah. um and um and of course you're rather skeptical scholars would say yeah it's unique it's more myth it's more legend involved right. your more conservative scholars would say no it's unique but it's more historical in nature and then along comes um uh you get charles talbert um who posits that they are Greco-Roman biographies. Mm -hmm. And um, he like introduces the idea. He gets some criticisms. Uh, some of them appear to be justified. And then you've got David Alney and some others who said, well, you know what? It, it looks like they are Greco-Roman biographies. And then yeah. you had Richard Burridge, who was trained in the classics. And he set out in his doctoral dissertation to disprove the hypothesis that right, the Gospels yeah. are Greco-Roman biographies. He, he, he was not initially favorable. That's to right. That position, yeah. And he does this this pretty careful analyses and uh, ends up changing his mind and concluding that they are indeed they belong to the genre of Greco-Roman biography, mm -hmm. all four of them. And um, he just in fact just a, a couple of years ago he put out the the 25th anniversary edition of that yeah. book. And uh, then afterward, you had, you know, your mentor and my dear friend uh, and one whom I've learned a tremendous amount from, uh, Craig Keener. And he argued that the Gospels belong to Greco-Roman biography. Now, I know one of your, your professors there, uh, a guy that I have tremendous admiration for, Ben Witherington, doesn't think that Luke belongs to Greco-Roman biography. He thinks it's more historiography sure. along yeah. with Acts. I, I, I don't agree with that. It, it's not a whole lot of difference, but, you know, if you go to Julius Caesar, I'm, I'm sorry, The Life of Caesar by um, Plutarch, um, nobody questions whether that's biography, sure. but it yeah. has a whole lot of characteristics of history um, in it. Right. So it's the same thing, I think, with, the, with uh, Luke's gospel. It has a lot of characteristics of historiography, but it focuses on the life of Jesus. So mm -hmm. that's why I'd say it's a biography. But yeah. either way, you'd either say that the Gospels are Greco-Roman biographies or at very minimum, they share a whole lot in common with them.
Mm-hmm. And I think since it's the only biography, biographical genre that day, pretty much, you just say, just call it ancient biography genre. Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially with uh, with Luke uh, and uh, Dr. Witherington's uh, view there, there's a there's relatively little significant difference, if, if really any, between yeah. arguing that Luke is more history than biography compared to arguing Luke is more you know, more myth or, or historical novel or something like that. And right. biography there's yeah, where, where Dr. Witherington lands on that is very different than like you mentioned a lot of other folks. Uh, but you, you said that the majority of scholars today, whether they like it or not, and whether they agree with miracles or not, they, they would say that, you know, the gospels are forms of ancient biographies. Is that fair? Yeah, the, there are some subset of and of the genre of Greco-Roman biography. Let's just call it ancient biography. Yeah. There are some subset of it. And it's almost like, you know, Plutarch is a subset, um, <laughs> probably there with uh, Suetonius. Yeah. But then you've got some others and, you know, there are different subsets. So you've got, you know, those of philosophers and those of teachers and those of political figures and, and so forth. But yeah, the, uh, the large majority of New Testament scholars today would classify the gospels as ancient biographies, Mm -hmm. some sort of ancient biography, or at least even for those who question whether they are, they say that they share a a whole lot in common with that genre. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, One other thing too, again, just to kind of, kind of put a bow on this, you mentioned Josephus, who is, uh, Roughly contemporary with some of the uh, some of the figures of the later half of the first century, right? first uh, first century AD, just for, for folks to kind of get a sense of where we are in the historical timeline. Josephus has written an autobiography. Philo, who lived uh, lived earlier than Josephus, um, <clears throat> Philo. These three biographies that you mentioned, both of those figures that you could name, um, and I I. I'll admit, I tried to pull it up and find really quickly you know, what was the third one. I, I couldn't find it easily. But let's just take Moses and Abraham. Those are figures from the distant past. Yeah. And so yeah. It, it compare what we have, either an autobiography or figures from the far distant past, with what we see from uh, biographies written by you know Greek and Roman figures, biographies of folks who were living either roughly contemporaneous or maybe only you know decades earlier rather than the distant past it's kind of a it's kind of an interesting difference there it is um, but uh, not as much as you might think i mean in some cases okay. yeah so like for example suetonius he's writing the he's best known for his lives of the 12 caesars mm-hmm. so um, the first 3 uh, julius augustus and tiberius are regarded as suetonius's finest. In okay. fact, the life of Augustus by Suetonius is considered his finest. After Tiberius, then the quality starts to decrease. And then mm-hmm. after Nero dies in 68, um, the ones that come after him, he just kind of rushes through them. So there's all they're, they're, they, they decrease significantly mm-hmm. uh, with the quality. So, but here, here's the thing, Kevin, um, you know, Suetonius is writing we don't know exactly, but uh, let's just call it around the year 120. It could have been yeah. a, a few years before that or a few years after that. Yeah. Um, we Suetonian specialists don't know exactly when he wrote, but they figure it's around that time. So if you say about 120, maybe just a couple of years earlier, 
you know, Augustus dies, I think it's in the year 14. Okay. So he's writing more than a hundred years later uh, for Augustus. And Julius Caesar, uh, you know, he dies in 44 BC. So now you're looking at about 165 years uh, later. And then Plutarch, you know, we've got 48 biographies that he wrote that have survived. Now, some of them are more closer to his own time, Mm -hmm. but a lot of them, when you're talking about Caesar, Cicero, Pompey, Antony, Brutus, people like that, now you're going back more than 140 years. And then you go before that, you know, he's got biographies of, of uh, Romulus, the legendary founder (laughs) of Rome and Theseus, the uh, legendary founder of Greece. And now we're kind of talking about what you're looking at, you know, Uh a thousand years before Christ. Okay. Okay. So not, not as uh, maybe not a very, uh, very good comparison. Um, Yeah. No, or maybe there's not too much. It's both, right. They're, they're especially Plutarch. He's writing for those in the distant past. And then those who are closer to his own lifetime. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. So, so it, with that in mind, it, it's it's interesting to note that the gospels are written between 20 and 65 years. Let's yeah. call about just 20 to 70 years right. afterward. Yeah. Yeah. That that is uh that, that is worth uh, worth highlighting there, especially you mentioned uh Suetonius and how he's you know if he's writing you know 120 somewhere in there. Um, yeah, the distance between him and say Nero is is not uh, is not that significant when you yeah, even Nero. With, you're looking at fifty years. Yeah, there there's still there's still folks around who yeah, they'd be older, but they might still remember some of these things or at least yeah, yeah. living memory. Yeah, very true. And you know, it's interesting too. When we talk about living memory. Uh, New Testament scholar Robert MacGyver wrote a book. I think it was published in 2011. Uh, it's called Memory, Jesus, and the Synoptic Gospels, published by the Society of Biblical Literature. Okay. And in there, he relies on uh, several studies on t- in terms of population within different regions and um, the average lifestyle, uh, lifespan. And what he found is that somewhere between one to one and a half percent in that area uh, uh, throughout the Roman Empire and in and Judea lived to be 80 or longer one to one and a half percent. Wow. He also yeah. estimates that based on the population estimates within uh, Judea um, and Galilee, that Jesus probably came in contact with uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 62,000 eyewitnesses ages 15 and above. So based on that, he concludes that around the time Mark's gospel was written, somewhere between 13,000 and 15,000 eyewitnesses were still alive. And even when John was written 60 to 65 years later, somewhere between 600 to 1100 eyewitnesses were still alive. Therefore, all four gospels were likely written within living memory. That is while eyewitnesses were still alive. Wow. And SBL published that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, that's, that's that's a pleasant surprise. Um, wow, man, that that is cool. I I was not familiar with that study before, uh, and his name was Robert MacGyver. Yes, memory like... Jesus and the Synoptic Gospels. Okay, very cool. All right, that's something worth uh, worth digging into that can really kind of uh, add some substance to this kind of conversation. Thanks for bringing that up. Mm-hmm. If the Gospels then have been written in this genre, like using these uh, using these conventions, using these kinds of tools that one would use. What kind of expectations would ancient audiences have 
when hearing the gospels read to them, because chances are most of them had it heard, read to them, and didn't have their own copies to read for themselves, what kind of expectations would they have? What kind of expectations can we have when we read the gospels today as, uh, as examples of Greco-Roman biography or, uh, or maybe uh, just sort of more generally ancient historiography? Yeah. Well, that's not so easy to answer, Kevin, because... Um, I'm here to ask the tough question. Yeah, no, <laughs> and, and it's fine. The reason it's not so easy to answer is because just like today, um, historians vary in their quality. Okay. <clears throat> so typically, though, generally, ancient biography, you know, it was a historical genre. It wasn't a novel. Mm -hmm. uh, novels, as, as Craig Keener has pointed out, Novels were typically romances in which two lovers overcame obstacles. Um, that's certainly not what you have in the Gospels unless you buy into the Da Vinci Code, which no credible series scholar does. <laughs> right. um, yeah. Ancient novels yeah. uh, almost always involved exclusively fictitious characters who lived in the distant past. Mm -hmm. on, on some rare occasions, an ancient novel will mention a historical person, but there isn't a single case of an ancient novel in which a, it, a historical person is mentioned when that person had lived within even as recently as a century of the time of writing or composition of okay. that of that biography. Yeah. So uh, a novel, I'm sorry. So it's interesting to note that number one, the gospels are not romances. And number two, they contain a whole lot of, of characters we know to be historical. People like Caesar Augustus, Tiberius Caesar, Herod the Great, his sons Archelaus, Antipas, and um, Philip. Mm -hmm. um, you've got Pontius Pilate, you have Caiaphas, you have his father, father-in-law, I forgot which one, uh, Ananus. You've got um, Pontius Pilate, you have Jesus, you have James's brother, you have John the Baptist. These are all known to be historical characters, and all of them had lived as within a century of the time of writing yeah. uh, these gospels. So, um, so this is, this is important. It's profound. Gospels are not novels. They are biographies. And so readers would anticipate that they are going to be reading historical reminiscences yeah. of the main character. Who's also called the biography spelled P H E E at the gotcha. end, rather than yeah. P H Y yeah. biography is the main character. So, um, but that said, you know, not everybody was committed to the same degree of, of integrity and accuracy. So, you know, Philostratus's Life of Apollonius of Tiana, writing around the year uh, 225, you know, no one really thinks that he is attempting to write a serious biography of Apollonius. Yeah. Um, so, and you have Lucian of Samosata in his book, How to Write History. He refers to Aristobulus, who was writing a biography of Alexander the Great while Alexander was still alive. And he gave a part of it to Alexander while they were on a voyage. And Alexander read it and he threw it overboard. And he says, I ought to do the same to you, Aristobulus, because he was reporting fictitious things in there. And, and Alexander concluded, like fighting an elephant and killing an elephant single-handedly. And he said, you know, people aren't going to believe that. And then they won't believe the really good, accurate things that you report about me. Yeah. So, but let's put it this way. The more accurate 
the more accurate, better biographers, like a Plutarch, like a Suetonius, like a Tacitus when he's writing his biography of his father-in-law, Agricola, mm -hmm. um, you know, people like that, you're, you're, you're going to expect a greater degree of accuracy. That said, just one more thing to say here yeah. is in ancient biography, they had a different objective in writing than modern biographers do. Modern biographers okay. think along the lines of what were the things, the elements in this person's life, their education, their socioeconomic background, um, things that happened in their environment, in their lives that shaped them to become the kind of person that they are, they ended up being. Whereas an ancient biographer, um, in ancient biography, the beliefs of the ancients is that you were born with a certain character. It did not develop. You were born with it, but it manifested itself later on in life. So the purpose of an ancient biography, according to Plutarch, in chapter one of his life of Alexander, and there are other passages, parallel passages that indicate the same thing in Plutarch, mm -hmm. that the purpose of an ancient biography is to include the deeds and sayings of that person that illuminate the character of that biography, P-H-E-E, -E, right. the character of the main character. What kind of person was this? And um, that's what we should expect when we come to the Gospels. Um, what deeds, what sayings and teachings of Jesus are there to illuminate who Jesus was? Mm -hmm. That's what we're looking at. We're also not going to be looking at for precise accuracy. They weren't committed to that. Some were more committed to it than others, but not like modern biographers are. Yeah. Let me, let's dig into that just a little bit, if you don't mind. What, what reason for not, what reasons might they have for not being able to, to arrive at the exact precision that many modern biographers would today, you know, did, did they have some limitations that, that kept them from that kind of thing? Well, natural limitations such as, you know, you don't have video recorders, you don't have audio recorders. Yeah. You know, it's not like someone's there with their mobile phone now and just press record and can record the interview. Right. right. Um, or, you know, in, in some way. So, you don't have that. A lot of times they're writing when eyewitnesses have, have died. So they're a lot of times they're not writing within living memory. Now they do have, you know, reports of people who were alive at that time. And so sometimes in some occasions, you're going to co compare multiple independent reports to see what you can find. But um, you know, it depends how closely they're writing to when this person and the events actually had occurred. So you're going to have just the natural, um, uh, you know, the natural limitations yeah. that you could suspect for people in antiquity. Yeah. Um, and most people couldn't read or write. So even the eyewitnesses in many occasions are going to be recalling what, what happened and they witnessed decades earlier. I mean, just take, for example, Patrick Henry's famous liberty or death speech. Mm -hmm. um, when that was reported, um, forgot who the author was. Um, and I, I have a name in mind, but I don't want to confuse it with, with someone else. So I'm not yeah. going to mention the name I'm thinking of. But when that person, that historian reported about uh, Henry's liberty or death speech, he had no notes uh, that had survived. Uh, we don't know that even Patrick Henry had any notes from that speech. But if he did, 
no notes survived. It, it was a speech that was only given once. Mm -hmm. And he's got two eyewitnesses who were there who did not take notes, but they are recalling what Henry said 41 years later. And so when you had this detailed recollection of Patrick Henry's liberty or death speech, we are getting a sense of what he said. We are getting the spirit and gist of what he said. Did he say, you know, give me liberty or give me death? Probably. Um, um, you know, some uh, when he says, give me liberty or li puts his hand or give me, you know, give me liberty or give me death. Um, did he do that? Well, probably, but we can't know for sure. And the other part of that speech is probably something that, you know, was reconstructed and gives us the gist, but we can't at all expect that that was um, an, um, a precise recollection of what Patrick Henry said. And what's that? That's less than 300 years ago. What's that? 250 yeah. years ago, something like that. Yeah. So now we're talking 2000 years ago when it comes mm -hmm. to the gospels or any ancient biographies of that period. Um, shorthand was in its infancy stages at, at that point. So like taking notes shorthand and, and really even just having something on hand to be able to take some kinds of notes would not have been commonplace, right? Well, you think about, yeah, that's correct. And, and you think about this, uh, Randy Richards is a friend of mine. He's a provost at Palm Beach Atlantic University. I so, recommended um, uh, one of his books to, uh, to somebody at church uh, just last week. Yeah. Great scholar, great guy too, really is. Love Randy. And, and he did his doctoral dissertation on uh, Paul and the, sec uh, the secretaries uh, who helped him write his letters. Yeah. And he, he's doing all these things. And, he, he, you know, we know that um, anyway, I can't get into a whole lot of this right now unless you want to unpack it. But what Randy does, he, he told me that he has this exercise he does with his students. So he passes out a piece of papyrus to each of them. And he gives them a read and he gives them some ink. He says, okay, I want you to take this dictation. Are you ready? Okay, <laughs> pick up your read. Here you go. Paul, an apostle. Dip it in the ink, start writing on it. One minute later, of Jesus Christ. One minute later, by the will of God. Now, can you imagine writing a letter that way? It's not brutal. happening. Yeah. Not if you've got a scribe or a secretary taking dictation like this, the way a letter would probably be written if Paul is not writing it with his own hand, which in at least three letters, he says he did not. Right. Um, the, the, he is this, the scribe, the secretary is taking notes. And then that secretary turns around and composes the letter based on those notes that the secretary had taken, gives it to Paul, Paul reads it, suggest some changes. They keep going through this process until it's done. Paul reads it, signs off on it. Yeah, That's how letters would have been written if the person wasn't writing it uh, with their own hand. In fact, you come to the crown jewel of Paul's letters, Romans in chapter 16, verse 22, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, yeah. greet you in the Lord. And this isn't something that would have been unique for the Christians. You, as, as Richards points out, Cicero, one of the most highly educated and articulate Romans, he had Tiro. Yeah. And in uh, one of his letters, a contemporary of Julius Caesar, for folks who are trying to kind of keep chronology in mind. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So he's writing a letter to Tiro and he said, Hey, I, Pompey was over for dinner and he asked me to read something I'd recently written and I declined. He said, Because Tiro hasn't 
had time to make it better. <laughs> so, I mean, you got Cicero and he's re, he's uh, relying on yeah. his secretary, Tiro, to help him. So, you know, here's and here's the thing. You know, they say the Gospels are anonymous, right? Because they're not, it, the names aren't in the titles. And by the way, if you take a survey of all the biographies written within 150 years on each side of Jesus, so within the 300-year period, all the biographies written about anyone that have survived, you want to know how many of them have the author's name in the title? Zero. None of them do. Um, the only one that really has a quick identification is the passing of Peregrinus by Lucian of Samosata, because in his first sentence after the title, yeah. he's, he, he says, I, Lucian, greet you, you know, something like that. So identify. But other than that, you don't have it in any of them. Mm -hmm. The first time you have someone is, um, I think it's the life of Elias in the Historia Augusta, latter part of the, of the fourth century about a half a century after the Council of Nicaea. That's how late it is. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I actually didn't know that. So so then it it seems it seems difficult to discount the apostolic connections of the gospel accounts simply because they do not have authors' names listed in them. Is, is that fair? That's fair. If you're going to do that with the gospels, which... Um, a number of skeptical scholars like to do and say, mm -hmm. we have no idea who wrote them. We have no idea who wrote them because their names aren't in the titles. Well, then you're going to have to say that about virtually every other biography written within that 300 year period. They're not yeah. going to do it. In fact, Plutarch's lives are every bit as anonymous as the gospels. And yet no one, no classicist out there questions whether Plutarch wrote those lives. I didn't and know that. Wow. Suetonius's lives of the 12 Caesars are entirely anonymous. No mm -hmm. one questions whether he wrote those. You've got um, Livy's Roman history, anonymous, entirely. Uh, you've got Sallust, war with Catiline, war with Jugurtha, his, his Roman histories, anonymous. Um, and nobody questions whether he wrote those. Mm -hmm. Julius Caesar's commentary on the Civil War, written entirely in the third person. He doesn't identify himself as <laughs> the author. By the way, you know, that has a lot to say about John's gospel. You have people saying, well, John couldn't have written it because, you know, uh, they're talking about the author you know, as though it's a different person. Well, perhaps John wrote in a third person. Would that be so strange? Julius Caesar did it. Polybius did it, uh, refers to himself in the third person quite a bit. You read about Jesus, what he's talking about in the gospels. Jesus refers to himself very often in the third person. So it yeah. shouldn't be at all strange that we see if John was writing in the third wow. person. Wow. All right. I, I did not know that about the, um, uh, about the anonymity of the other uh, other biographies that are out there, and uh, you said you said a roughly like 150 years on either side of the life of Jesus. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, that's pretty. There's deep. just under a hundred of them that have survived. Yeah. Somewhere around 90 that have survived, and all of them, uh, none of them have the author's name in the title or the preface. Fascinating. The yeah. only one would be Lucian of Samosata, who's got his name in the preface because that greeting, uh, you, you know. Yeah. In, that, in that one. The well, and, and Lucian of Samosanto never missed an opportunity to be self-aggrandizing either. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. If these are works of uh, works of history that intend to tell us about real people and real events, and, and you listed off a string of names that um, that we see mentioned in the Gospels elsewhere, as historians, how can we how can we read these? And uh, and do the work of a historian, and verify or corroborate some of these details that we might find in the Gospels. Um, this is something that I, I actually mentioned in my dissertation. But let's start off with 
see kind of where where you go with this. How do we corroborate some of these details? Help help walk us kind of through how we would do the work of a historian with these uh, with these documents. Yeah, this is a good question. I'm really glad that that you're going to touch on this too because this is where your dissertation comes in and makes a significant contribution. And this has to do with um, what scholars for a while have called the criteria of authenticity. And these are not magical criteria by any sense. These are common sense principles. So, you know, let's just take the gospels off the table and let's just say something like Caesar's crossing the Rubicon or name whatever you want from antiquity. Okay. So fascinating that you would go to that particular example. (laughs) (laughs) What's that? Uh, it's fascinating that you would go to that particular example. I happen to ha- have something about that in my dissertation. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so it's like, well, why believe Caesar crossed the Rubicon? Well, you know, you've got these a number of sources to do. I think we've got something like, what's it? Uh, nine sources, five that specifically attest to it, and four mm-hmm. that indirectly attest to it, something like that. It, it's, not, on- it's not a ton, right? It's not a ton. But no. It's, it's, it's a handful. Yeah. And Caesar's not one of them. Uh, the fa- one, <laughs> he doesn't attest to it. Right. Now he does say it indirectly. I mean, he talks about being in Ravenna, mm-hmm. and then he talks about being in Ariminum, which in order to get from Ravenna to Ariminum, you got to cross the Rubicon, but he yeah. doesn't talk about a Rubicon crossing, mm-hmm. anything like that. Um, but you look at the sources and you say, okay, do we have any eyewitness sources? Is there direct, indirect evidence? How long are they writing after the event they purport to describe? Do you have any uh, unsympathetic or hostile sources? You know, do we have multiple independent sources? Mm-hmm. And of course, the more sources, the better, the earlier, the better. Eyewitness, even all the more. And especially if you have an unsympathetic source that uh, uh, testifies to the same thing, that works out well. Today, you've got a number of New Testament scholars who are calling into question the value of these criteria of authenticity. And I, you know, of course, I think they've got a good point to say, you know, you meet some of these criteria. It's not like a vending machine that you just put in a dollar, press the button and you get the product you want. It doesn't work like mathematical science, but Mm -hmm. um, you, you can look at probability. So, and these are just common sense things. And and the thing I want to ask them and, and some criteria are more valuable than others. I'll grant sure. that. But the one I, what I want to ask them who say the, the criteria are really of little to no value is, do you think Jesus died by crucifixion? And virtually every last scholar in irrelevant fields in the world will say yes, no yeah. matter how skeptical. Yeah. They say, well, how do you arrive at that conclusion if you're not using the criteria? Right. You know, how, how do you arrive at that um, if you don't use the criteria? Anyway, I think that we can use these criteria in a, in, a, in, in a sense. And then you look at things like the motif. Is it multiply attested? And all kinds of things like that. So, you know, there are ways with the criteria. You can use what, what as re, historians refer to as criteria of inference to the best explanation. Mm-hmm. Those are different criteria. And you would use that for comparing hypotheses that explain the knowable facts. So, you know, if you know certain facts about Caesar uh, uh, back then, then, all right, he was in Ravenna, then he was in Ariminum. How, how do we know that? Okay, we know these two things. All right, that's been established. All right, so now let's look at various hypotheses. One hypothesis is that he crossed the Rubicon. Another hypothesis is he had he did not cross the Rubicon, but he had an identical twin who did. You know, and, and you do all these, and then the criteria of inference to the best explanation would say, you know, which one requires the least amount of speculation, which one uh, 
you know, in, is able to account for the maximum number of knowable facts, which one, given the truth of the hypothesis, you expect certain things, and those are the things we get, and which one is the most plausible given our background knowledge. And the one that best fulfills those criteria is regarded as what probably occurred. So I, I'd say that's typically how you come to, to know the past with a reasonable degree of certainty. It, it's not exhaustive. You can't have absolute confidence. It just doesn't work that way with history, but we look at probability. Yeah. I'm glad, I, I knew you, that was your position, but I'm glad to hear you really emphasize the fact that it is a probability that the historian seeks, um, <clears throat> much like um, much like a, a lawyer would in, in a court case, if there's not, you know, a um, you know like a, an untampered, you know, undistorted video recording or you know, you know audio recording of confession or something along those lines. Barring the existence of those, you know, the lawyer is arguing for the most probable thing. That would have happened. Historians have to operate in the same way, really, in a similar vein. Not not to trail off into these uh, these issues, but you know, take someone like a uh, like a paleontologist or an evolutionary biologist. They are also having to make arguments based on the remains that they see, and you know, kind of say, okay, what probably happened to get us to this point. Some of those tools that you mentioned earlier, um, you, you went through. And because I'm familiar with them, I, I was following you quickly. I want to back up just for a second, if we can, to dig into a few of those. Um, maybe some of the ones that, uh, that I think make the most sense, uh, just at kind of a logical level. You've mentioned a couple of times this notion of multiple and independent uh, attestation or multiple and independent sources. Help us kind of dig into that for just a second. What is it about multiple and independent attestation? Why would that lend credibility to a report that we find in something like the Gospels or comparing maybe the Gospels and, say, Paul, who are probably not drawing from one another? Yeah. Well, um, okay, so as, as you're already well aware, yeah. when we look at the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, mm -hmm. most scholars today think that Mark wrote first and that Matthew and Luke used Mark as their primary source. Yeah. That's the working hypothesis. Um, most scholars do not think that Matthew, at least the one in our New Testament, was, was written first or that Luke was written first. There's uh, Delbert Burkett has uh, recently, at uh, 2018, he wrote a book. I, I'm reading it right now, and I'm finding it quite fascinating. It's called The Case for Proto-Mark. And this has been okay. presented before, but he's presenting a, a little nuanced case, and it's quite compelling, I'm finding it, where he thinks, you know, Mark, uh, you know, Mark is, uh, I'm not sure, well, I'm not sure where he's coming at, but he thinks that there was like, a version of Mark that predates the one that we have. And that's the one that Matthew and Luke on ah, okay. our Mark. So, so maybe like it, a first draft or it just could be something kind of like that. Interesting. Yeah. So what I'm, what I'm finding though, uh, let's just, it, whether it was a proto Mark or Mark, it's still the Mark and material mm -hmm. uh, is, is first and is primary. And then, so any story in which you've got Matthew, Mark and, and Luke, it's not, you know, you, you've got one source, whether it's Mark or proto-Mark, right. it's one source. It's yeah. not three different sources because they're not 
indie, they're not all independent. They're all going back to the same source, whether it's Mark or Proto Mark. Yeah. Okay. Um, but if you say something like the feeding of the 5,000, it's not only in Mark, but it's also in John. Yeah. Um, the walking on water is not only in Mark, but it's also in John. And even though scholars dispute whether John knew of Mark, uh, most Johannine specialists think that Mark, uh, John is writing independently of Mark. So he could know of Mark. Sure. He could be familiar with, with what Mark said, but he's still as an independent witness, he's, or he's writing independently of, yeah. of Mark. So and, and most, knowledge, so, sorry to interrupt, but knowledge of a source there does not necessarily imply uh, use of that source. That's right. Is that fair? Yeah. And then most uh, Johannine specialists um, think that John or, well, most Johannine specialists don't think that John, the son of Zebedee, the traditional authorship of John's gospel is correct. Uh, Craig Keener thinks that John, the son of Zebedee did, uh, wrote it. He's such a uh, rogue. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think there's good reason to think John, John wrote it. I'm not a specialist. So, you know, I, I lean toward that way, but, um, but I'm not a specialist with the gospel of John. Yeah. So, but, but even those who deny the majority of those who deny that John, the son of Zebedee wrote it, the traditional authorship, they still think that John's primary source, perhaps not his only one, but his primary source was one of Jesus disciples. Yeah. Whether it was John, the son of Zebedee, or it could have been a minor disciple of Jesus who traveled with them. It was still closely rooted in eyewitness testimony, just like Mark is closely rooted in the eyewitness testimony of Peter. And by the way, I I had a grad student, Joshua Pelletier. I supervised his master's thesis. He did uh, research on prolegomena related to Mark. He surveyed over 200 critical scholars writing in English since 1965. Um, If someone wants to see this, I've interviewed him. It's on my YouTube channel. Over 200 critical scholars he uh, consulted since 1965, and he found that the majority of them that are, are, are that speak to it, they hold to the traditional authorship of Mark's gospel, and that Mark's primary source was none other than the Apostle Peter. Wow. So that means that the majority of critical scholars writing in English since 1965 about this think that Mark... Mark's gospel is very closely rooted in the eyewitness testimony of Peter. And so John, his same thing, only it's closely rooted in the eyewitness testimony of one of Jesus' disciples. This is pretty awesome stuff when you start to think about it. Yeah, that's pretty neat. Yeah. Well, and especially when you compare those kinds of things. So so we've got material that Mark has kind of drawn and gathered together. Um, our, Our traditional... Uh, explanation, I think, is the best explanation coming from Peter. Mm-hmm. You've got John's material, whether drawing from John, the son of Zebedee, or someone you know closely associated to John, the son of Zebedee. So we've got two, uh, we have multiple and independent sources. When you add to that another figure like Paul, who would have been writing his letters, especially this early material in 1 Corinthians 15, yeah. Uh, for those of you who have Bibles nearby, grab 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15 and open up starting around somewhere around verse 3, I think. Paul yep. lists through uh, a series of, uh, of, of events, series of statements that, uh, that go very back to, go back quite a bit to uh, Jesus' uh, Jesus's life and his earliest followers. 
Pollen, that yeah. mix too. And we have, again, yet another, a multiple independent uh, source attesting to these kinds of things. And that's, uh, for the sake of the audience, that's generally how this notion of multiple and independent attestation works. That's right. Um, something that, that I, you had mentioned earlier um, that is kind of along these lines, and a name that I mentioned earlier, uh, I, either in the recording or, or before we started recording, um, actually the guy who was Craig Keener's uh, dissertation advisor, E.P. Sanders from Duke Divinity, um, he argues that one way that we can have a pretty high degree of, uh, of certainty that we're dealing with some historical fact is that if we have a view that is common to both friend and foe alike. And so one example that comes to mind is, um, you know, the notion that Jesus performed miracles. This idea that Jesus performed miracles, and we have uh, oh, obviously his disciples believing Jesus performed miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we also have uh, knowledge that, uh, that Jesus performed miracles empowered by, or we, we have attestation rather, that Jesus performed miracles by his opponents, by the scribes and the Pharisees, and they, they argued not that Jesus didn't perform miracles, they affirmed that he did, but was empowered instead by Satan. Yeah. So Sorcery. I think that that, I think that that is, do you, what, what's your take on that? You, it, what could his, could a historian make kind of a, it, do you think that that's a kind of a valid tool to use for helping us kind of understand the kinds of things that Jesus is reported as having do, having done? I mean, yeah. So you're talking about the criterion of unsympathetic or, or hostile sources and yeah. enemy attestation. And so I guess it would be, let, let, let's say this, if, you know, here, here we are in a situation when this is recorded where Afghanistan is falling and there's all sorts of chaos. There. Right. Yeah. So at the um, time of recording, it was just last week. Yeah. Just last week that the embassy fell. All kind of chaos. Worse yeah. than what happened in Vietnam. Um, and at Saigon, when Saigon fell. So if you have, I, I haven't been following it too closely, to be honest with you. I'm praying for these folks over, over yeah. there. I really feel for them. I, I, I am praying for them. It's about all I can do at this point. Um, so I don't know who's necessarily who's saying what, but let's just say Donald Trump comes out and he says, I told you that something like this would happen if, you, if, you, if Biden won. All right. So, but of course he's biased, right? <laughs> Um, so, say, but yeah. <laughs> if you if you had someone like Chuck Schumer or Nancy Pelosi, enemies of Trump, yeah. they hate him. They're diametrically opposed to him. Yeah. If they were to say, "Well, you know, you know what? We don't like Donald Trump, but he was right on this stuff." Um, that's enemy att attestation, yeah. and so that goes. That would be go to saying that. Trump's position was was correct. Now, of course, he had a position he wanted to pull everyone out to. So this, this may not be a, a great analogy, but I, I think you can get the the, the idea behind yeah. what I'm what I'm saying there. So when it comes to the Gospels, or let's just say some about Jesus being a miracle worker, mm -hmm. enemy attested. Well, you do have in the Talmud they refer to Jesus as a sorcerer, 
which would seem to suggest that he was known to perform some astonishing deeds at that yeah. time. Problem is the Talmud is a little bit late. It's a few hundred years after Jesus, and it's not known to be committed to any serious degree of accuracy. So um, you could use it, but it's probably uh, attest more to what how some Jewish leaders were responding to reports of Jesus' miracles a few hundred years after Jesus. Yeah. I think more important would be Josephus in his Antiquities of the Jews, book 18, section 63, mm -hmm. where even though it's a disputed passage, which uh, an element in it, which is not disputed, is where Josephus said that Jesus was a, per, uh, he, he worked amazing or astonishing deeds. And the term he uses there, paradoxa, I think it is, is the same one that but that he uses for i think the miracles of elijah or elisha interesting so um now that's not to say that josephus believed that jesus was right. actually performing divine miracles because yeah. it seems that josephus was not a christian but it does attest that jesus was known at the end of the first century he was known at that point to have been um, a miracle worker during his lifetime, you know, 60, 65 years earlier. Um, so, yeah, I think you can use it like that. And of course, the Gospels even written earlier than that. And I seriously doubt that Josephus would have used the Gospels as his sources. And <laughs> right, Josephus yeah. is born in the year 37, about, you know, four to seven years after Jesus had died. His father was Matthias, a popular Jewish priest. They lived in Jerusalem, so they. This place is Josephus geographically and chronologically in the very location where he and his family would have heard the apostles preaching. And if the Book of Acts is correct, that many Jewish priests were be uh, uh, becoming followers of Jesus. Now, this would have been a discussion at the Josephus family uh, dinner table. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. you know, he he would have heard about these things about mm -hmm. Jesus being a miracle worker so he's an he's not a hostile source but he certainly is an unsympathetic source yeah. that attests to jesus being known as a miracle worker yeah yeah and i think unsympathetic is a really good way to put that there like disinterested doesn't have a dog in that hunt is uh it is not looking to um to affirm bias in favor or bias against yeah one last uh, criterion that you mentioned, one that uh, I, I think is is pretty strong. Now you mentioned some of these uh, some of these opponents of these criteria. Um, they might push back on that. Although in uh, you know in this dissertation that we've mentioned a couple of times before, I demonstrated how at least one of these guys maybe uses it a little bit more than he thinks he does. But that's uh, maybe that's another conversation <laughs> for another time. Um, this notion of writing something. You know, take the Gospels. Obviously, they are biased in favor of Jesus. Jesus is, without question, the hero. He's the protagonist, etc. And yet, there are a few instances of material that is potentially uncomfortable, mm. if not downright embarrassing, about some of the things that maybe Jesus couldn't do in Nazareth when he was there visiting, uh, visiting friends and family, or some of the other things that, um, that Jesus said that undoubtedly made some people squirm uh, that man really sounded like Jesus might be asking us to do some things that wouldn't really jive with Torah about not taking care of our parents in their death and things like that. This notion of embarrassment 
is really kind of this criterion that we're talking about. Um, can I serve this up to you? How, how, how does that work? And does that lend itself well to some higher degrees of probability that if we find something embarrassing in one of these sources, chances are these biased in favor are, are, are not actually making this up, but they, for one reason or another, felt compelled to include this because it was the truth. Yeah. And by the way, and, uh, you know, and, and I mean, you're, you're really good on this. You, you really haven't talked much about it, but we've alluded to your dissertation a few times. I'm really looking forward to it being published because it's significant. It shows that these criteria aren't unique to New Testament mm -hmm. historians. They are also used by classicists or, or by, uh, I should say, general historians, I think yeah. you call them. And I think that's a really good term for them, general historians, those who reside out and operate outside the community of religious and Jesus scholars. So, you know, they're going to use them. I know that classicists use some of them. I've come across it as I look at um, commentaries on Plutarch's uh, lives and things like this. They use like the criterion of embarrassment, the criterion of multiple independent sources and yeah. eyewitness sources and all this. So yeah. we're not the only ones that, that, that do this. Mm -hmm. um, um, but yeah, the criterion of embarrassment, it's, it's not the primary one, but sure. I think yeah. it's something that certainly um, is, is great to supplement or it's a secondary one. It's one that's not the strongest, but it's still, I think, works pretty well. It's like, okay, well, if, if baptism is for the forgiveness of sins and Jesus is supposed to be perfect, then why is he being baptized by John the Baptist? Yeah. Um, if Jesus is truly born of a virgin, then why uh, does John say none of his brothers believed in him? Hmm. And Mark has it uh, that they thought he was beside himself. The, these are difficult matters. I, I don't yeah. know the answer to some of them, but, but the thing is, you wouldn't invent such a thing. If you are inventing right. stories about Jesus, you're not going to invent that. Or it's like Peter, uh, when, when Jesus predicts his death and resurrection, Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. The Greek says he rebukes him yeah. and says, this, this can't happen. And Jesus turns and rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. Well, if you're inventing this, why, why would you invent something that casts uh, your, your leader Peter yeah. in such a negative light. Um, yeah. The resurrection, uh, the, the resurrection narratives, you've got the women who go to the empty tomb and they're the ones that believe they're the ones that believe the angel that even the disciples don't, even after they see the empty tomb um, and they'd been in hiding anyway, it's like, you're, you're, you're presenting a story about a guy who comes back from the dead, which is already going to be difficult for sure. many people to believe. Why make it doubly difficult by, by having women who at that time were not respected as witnesses, good witnesses, um, but they're the ones who are the primary witnesses to the empty tomb and that Jesus rose from the dead, yeah. while the disciples, the male disciples, are cowering behind locked doors. I mean, uh, you're putting the men, the male disciples in a bad light while you're exalting the females, which, okay, you don't think much about that in our 21st century, sure. unless you live in Afghanistan, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So you don't think about that in the 21st century, but in the first century, you got to look at what their culture was back then. And a woman's testimony was very lowly regarded. So yeah. um, 
we find this throughout the Gospels, and I think that that um, in those cases where we find these embarrassing elements, it seems that this weighs in favor of authenticity. Yeah. And, and look, it, it, one other thing real quick, yeah, you, sure. you'll have um, some people respond to that and say, yeah, but that might be precisely what they were trying to do then. So now you're thinking that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John formed this committee for the misleading of future historians. <laughs> I just, I have a hard trouble time thinking that. Yeah. Yeah. One other thing that I've heard that folks will say in order to kind of push back against this, uh, one of whom is uh, Dr. Dale Allison, who we mentioned uh, earlier, will say that, okay, sure, you can say these things were embarrassing. Obviously, though, they were not sufficiently embarrassing to have been removed from the record. Maybe they weren't viewed as embarrassing at all. And if they weren't actually that embarrassing, then there goes the validity of your criterion. I think mm-hmm. one, one useful response to that kind of criticism is, well, It's possible, but it may also be as likely, perhaps more likely, that these things were just so embedded in the story that these things were so well known to be true that to cover over them or to cut them out or to change them would have uh, would have been um, would have been to do a disservice to the story that they were so rooted in the uh, in the in the traditions so rooted in the accounts the eyewitness accounts that you could not have easily you know cut these things out so another thing yeah, too that uh, I, I agree with you uh, uh, has found found really fascinating um in a book that in, was uh i've got it over here on my shelf so for, for those of you who are watching and I, i'm you, i'm looking over here uh i'm not checking not checking scores on the game or anything was a book entitled uh, Jesus Skepticism Mm. and the Problem of History, edited by two guys named uh, Daryl Bach and Ed Kamashevsky, who is doing much better these days. uh, Kamashevsky had had some health scares uh, recently, but it seems like he's doing better. Uh, Praise God for that. A gentleman by the name of Dr. Daniel Wallace, who is kind of the leading expert on Greek manuscripts in the New Testament. Uh, I'm speaking very generally for the audience's sake here. He's been able to show how various copies of you know, New Testament manuscripts, you can see instances of, um, of later scribes copying these kinds of things. And when they get to something really, you know, really kind of troubles, troubling, you can see how they have tried to maybe soften the language a little bit, try to not change it, but just maybe make it seem not as... You know, not as uh, upfront, not as uh, as difficult to swallow or things like that. It really does look like these later individuals found some of these kinds of things um, embarrassing. Mm. Th- that's just a kind of a quick and dirty explanation, uh, a summary of, uh, of Wallace's article in this book called Jesus Skepticism and the Problem of History, published by Zondervan. You can check it out if, if you're willing to wade through uh, something a little, little more solid, a little more dense than... Um, than for a popular audience. But I think Wallace has made a pretty good argument there as well. Mike, I think, it seems, I think it's uh, a go really ahead, good go book ahead. and a great response to those who question the value of the criteria. Yeah, yeah. And I think so. back, back to Allison just for a minute. I think Dale's 
uh, option, as you said, we can look at it and say, all right, that's possible. But when you, you know, you, you, you have two uh, views in front, one that says, okay, it's embarrassing and they would not have invented it, something that was embarrassing. And the other that says, well, it couldn't have been that embarrassing because they included in there, right? There's mm -hmm. two ways to look at it. And so what a historian does is say, yep, they're both possible. Which one, as you said, is the most probable? Yeah. And I think that it's far easier to explain away Dale's response than it is to explain away why they would have included something like this when it would have been so embarrassing yeah. to the earliest Christians. I think so. Well, now that we have, I think, established pretty clearly that we're dealing with uh, works of history and that we can, uh, we can expect a pretty high degree of uh, reliability in the kinds of things that we find in the Gospels, another question remains, and I'm just going to let this sit as a teaser here at the end of this episode. Why are there differences in the gospel accounts? For those of you who are kind enough to tune in, catch us on the next episode of Faith in the Folds, also with Mike Lacona, where we will dig into this question. Why are there differences in the gospels? Mike, thank you so much for joining us today, sir. Really appreciate it. We will catch up with you next time. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin.